hybrid um, colloquium today. Uh, a couple of announcements. Next week, we're going to have a panel um, that's been organized by the students who are taking the colloquium class. So that should be really interesting. So come to that. That will be virtual. Um, that is not in person. And um, yeah, so I'll let Greg come up and do our introduction for our speaker today. Hello, everybody. I have the pleasure of introducing our guest. Uh, ben Novak's primary passion is the restoration of the extinct passenger pigeon, the goal of Revive and Restore's flagship project, the Great Passenger Pigeon Company. Revive and Restore is a nonprofit conservation organization leading the effort to responsibly integrate biotechnologies into conservation practice. Ben's mission in leading the Greek passenger pigeon comeback is to set the standard for de-extinction protocol and considerations in the lab, in the field, and in social, socio-political and cultural spheres. While passenger pigeons are Ben's passion and specialty, the conceptualization and application of biotech-based genetic rescue solutions for all organisms have been a lifelong pursuit. During his bachelor's degree in ecology and evolution from Montana State University, and a Master's of Arts in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Well, first off, thank you so much, everyone, for having me and everyone on Zoom. Uh, I hope you can all see and, and hear really well. Um, when people, most people look me up, de-extinction is what comes up, and so that's heavily in the biography. Today, in the talk, uh, uh, you know, as, I, as um, is less known, I work in trying to bring biotechnology in a spectrum to conservation. Um, and so I'm going to explain what the organization I work for does and some of the real world projects that are in development now and, uh, and move towards this kind of initiative that we call intended consequences. So I'm going to move briskly and, and try to keep up. No, just kidding. I'm not going to go too fast. So this shouldn't be news for anybody in the room, but we are in the midst of a biodiversity crisis. And as someone who comes from a paleontology background, I just want to say something really right now. We are not at the start of a sixth mass extinction. We are not about to start one. We are 125,000 years into a sixth mass extinction. We are in it. We have already lost huge amounts of biodiversity. Almost all of it we know from human interactions on this planet. It's projected that in the next, by 2050, we'll lose 90% of our corals. By 2080, 50% of the species living in our biodiversity hotspots will be gone. These are projections. We could potentially make these projections less severe and reverse those. The threats of invasive species, disease, all of which getting worse with climate change, with many other factors, are the types of threats that conventional conservation measures are struggling to overcome, to which biotechnology is poised to come up with solutions that really work. And we cannot afford not to use every tool we can develop. Ultimately, inaction is not an option if we want to preserve and have quality of life and rich biodiverse environments. A model for revive and restore myself personally is coexistence with nature to stop putting a wall between us and it as if we can and actually create societies and, and human industries that coexist with biodiversity on this planet. And biotechnology will be absolutely crucial to doing so. At Revive and Restore, we are one of the only nonprofits in the world in this space trying to push 
biotechnologies for conservation, both the innovation and adoption through what we call the 21st century genetic rescue toolkit, this kind of staircase of foundational technologies that build to a plethora of different applications. We do this in three different ways. And I say this because a lot of people think Revive and Restore, like we have our own laboratory institution and staff and things like that. We are an office of about six people. We have a board, an advisory panel. We run a community of, of, of like 200 or 300, some people around the world. But we contract and work with laboratories to get things done. We are a nonprofit organization. We have three key roles. We are funding and coordinating cutting edge research and then applying biotech, things that already exist, we're trying to get access and into the hands of people who can use them. We do that as funders, co-designers, facilitators, and project managers. We are kind of big vision people and nuts and bolts people connecting the geniuses, many of which sit in this room and are listening to do the work that can make a difference. And then innovative engagement. We don't have a really better name for this yet, but ultimately none of that stuff moves forward without thinking through the social side of things. So I'm actually really happy to be speaking with the Genetic Engineering and Society group here today because that's your world. We, in that space, are working as conveners, advocates, and communications. Exactly what I'm doing here. We have 39 projects in cutting edge and application. We're uh, working to help 45 species around the world. As of right now, we're expanding further this year. And our diversity looks a bit like this. It's animal centric at the moment. We've only got one plant project, but we wanna, we wanna get more plants in there. But we are trying to hit a plethora of diversity from endangered to near threatened species, species of conservation concern, or species that need help that can actually give us science that helps species even in more need. A lot of these things are working in that first foundational step, just genomic sequencing. We're not getting into genetic engineering for everything. Just the incorporation of genomic data can greatly advance the, the, uh, and enhance the conventional tools we use, like captive breeding, translocations, things like that. And so a lot of work is going on in that space. And of course, there's a couple de-extinction projects in there. So... Of our 39 projects, three of them deal with an extinct species, and only two of them are actually de-extinction. So while we're known for passenger pigeons and de-extinction, that's actually only 5% of what we do. Um, and it's about 0.1% of what we fund. So I'll come back to this toolkit, and, and let's just go through the steps and talk about some of the things that we are funding and coordinating that people are doing. So the first step of this is genomics. Uh, the price, prices are coming down, the bioinformatics is going up, but there's still a huge disconnect between using what biomedicine and agriculture has adopted fully into conservation, which conservation, a lot of scientists in conservation are still using first generation tools that could be greatly expounded by genomics, proteomics, just the omics umbrella in general. And I've just picked out just a few of our projects to highlight what you can do. Um, our first wild genomes project is dealing with the sunflower sea star. This species was hit by a disease in 2013 that we still don't know the pathogen that causes sea star wasting disease. Over 95% of the population was wiped out. Sea stars are actually the primary keystones for kelp forests. So kelp forests, if you're unfamiliar, are literal underwater forests. And by that definition, host huge amounts of biodiversity. In the biodiversity hotspots of the oceans, it's either a coral reef or a kelp forest. And kelp forests were hit hard on the west coast of North America after these sea stars were wiped out. And the team is 
sequencing genomes to identify resistance alleles so then they can breed up captive populations that have resistance alleles and spread those traits without losing diversity at other key adaptable points in the genome. Um, that's something that will only be possible through guided genomic data. And they are doing that, and this will have the potential to create a disease-resistant population that then restores an entire ecosystem. So no genetic engineering, not even that far yet, but still able to potentially produce disease resistance for complete restoration. We have a salamander project we're funding up in Canada where they have created under road corridors, tunnels for these animals to move, but they don't really know if they're moving through them. They don't know if the gene flow is connecting. So they're going to use genomics to test whether or not the measures they put in place are working. And then of course, if they're working, plan new underground, under road tunnels and new translocations to restore lakes that have been, uh, where they've been eradicating fish that were once introduced to put these salamanders back. Another project that's kind of cool is actually only using genetic markers to begin with is with binturongs. They're a black market trade animal and they have island populations, they're territorial animals. Um, so they've collected some from the black market. They want to repatriate them to where they came from. And if they put them in the wrong population, it could cause some social dynamic problems. So they want to actually find out where these animals come from. So they're going to be using population genetics to do that and also using that to develop tools to improve reintroduction and rehabilitation and the captive breeding for that species. And then of course, confronting climate change, we have a project funded for the Joshua tree where they are analyzing and trying to find allele, alleles that deal with extremophile traits, mapping it to where the climate zones are now and using that to then project what we can expect for this population as the climate continues to change and what we may be able to do to start assisted migration over barriers that now exist that once didn't. That's a key thing to remember in conservation. There have been ice ages, back and forth heat waves, not at the pace we're experiencing now, but what's truly different about now is the fact that plants, animals, fungi, everything can no longer fundamentally move freely the way it once could. Last ice age, everything we have today was still alive, just living in slightly different places and they would move with the climate zones and now they can't. So we have to intervene. And by using genomic data, we can better understand how that might go and how that could work out and do it successfully. The next rung in this ladder are your basic biobanking cellular tools, stem cells, you know, what you can do in a Petri dish. And this is where genetic engineering can actually start to be incorporated. It doesn't have to be, but one excellent example of genetic engineering that could help conservation is with the horseshoe crab. Now, Revive and Restore did not create the science or fund the science that created this project. We are an advocate. We're in the innovative engagement bucket for this project. Um, but let me describe the situation if it's not familiar to you. Horseshoe crabs are basically a living fossil. They've been around for over 450 million years. They congregate on the East Coast and lay eggs. And while they're there, people catch them and bleed them because their blood is essential, basically, to medicine as we know it. Everyone in this room, I'm going to assume, has had some type of injectable drug or vaccination, something put in their body. And if you have ever had that happen, you owe your life to those animals right there because all medicine in the world is tested for endotoxins using the blue blood of horseshoe crabs. It detects endotoxins from bacteria that if they were in the drugs that were put in your body would cause you to have a very, 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 very bad time and die. And so people develop what they call the limulus amoebocyte lysate test, LAL. But of course, you're bleeding crabs. 
And the industry has gotten by saying like, oh, well, you bleed them, you throw them back in the water and they're fine. But we're seeing large amounts of die off now. And these animals support entire ecosystems with just one species of birds, like the red knots alone. Horseshoe crabs connect the nutrient transport chains from the Arctic to South America with these migrating birds. And so with the declines in horseshoe crabs, we're seeing loss of those birds. We will see complete ecosystems start to break down. And a substitute to LAL was invented in 1995 through genetic engineering. The gene that creates the limulus lysate te uh, test, factor C, was isolated, cloned into a plasmid, stuck into E. coli, and a synthetic alternative called recombinant factor C was created. Um, one pharmaceutical company uh, does use this so far, but it has yet to been get, be given at blanket approval by FDA, despite it being far superior than the wild harvest version. So once you have cellular tools, you can grow some cells in culture, you can do some things like that. You can start using things like advanced reproductive technologies to recreate individuals. And that's where things really start to open up. A project we work with that we spearhead directly that I work on is the black-footed ferret. And so I'll give you some history behind black-footed ferrets. This is where they live. And if you're unfamiliar with maps, this is the United States. <laughs> the state borders are gone. So I think a lot of public education kids in our country might not have seen that. Um, but there it is, Canada, Mexico. They lived everywhere from a slightly bit of Mexico here to a little tiny bit of Canada over what is today the Great Plains. And by the early 1900s, due to the conversion of prairie to farmland, uh, as well as the errat intentional eradication of their prey by the U.S. government and predator control programs, they had dwindled to a single surviving population. It was actually assumed to be extinct twice. Um, in the 50s, they thought they were extinct. Then they discovered them in South Dakota. And then that population blinked out. And they thought they were gone. And then in 1981, Shep the ranch dog dropped a dead black-footed ferret on his owner's porch and he was he threw it over the fence his dog brought him dead things all the time but his wife thought that was one goofy looking critter so she picked it up and brought it to the local taxidermist in Matitsi, Wyoming and he was speechless went into his back called the state game and fish and said I have an extinct black-footed ferret right here for all he knew they were actually probably extinct because he was looking at a dead one but they got out there and found 120 of this species still in the area. But a few years later, they got hit by disease and dropped to 40 animals in the span of three months. The decision was made to bring them into captivity and, and make a captive breeding program. And since 1991, they've been reintroduced to 30 locations throughout their former range. However, all of those ferrets reintroduced, the many generations that have been produced in captivity, which is now over 10,500, have all been bred from just seven individuals. That's more like a gene thimble rather than a gene pool. It's very small. And it looks like this. So from 1981 to 87, a total of 24 ferrets were captured. And in the stud book, I did a lot of research to put this together. You won't find this anywhere, so check it out now. Um, they have 27 stud book numbers. This is insane. They didn't have the stud book at the time, so let me clarify. They predict their relationships like this. The first animal caught by Shep was given the honorary stud book number one, even though it was never brought into the breeding program, so we have to remove that. And then two animals 
for some odd reason, were just considered the theoretical parents of two animals they caught that were siblings. So even though they have 27 stud boat numbers, only 24 animals were captured, and their relationships are such that every animal that bred descends from these seven green animals right there. Six of them died of canine distemper shortly after they were caught and didn't breed. So actually only 18 animals lived in, survived in captivity, 14 of those successfully bred that are descended from those seven. Now this presents us with something that we call the threat of the extinction vortex, meaning you have a small population that begins to inbreed, compromising its fitness that makes it uh, lose reproductive viability, which makes it smaller, which then just makes the problem worse, and it spirals down into extinction. Now, this is not happening to the black-footed ferret because they are carefully managed and they haven't gotten to severe inbreeding yet, but it is a major threat. Now, the way people deal with the extinction vortex is through what is traditionally called genetic rescue, not our 21st century version, but it, you bring in new individuals from a healthier population and it increases the genetic diversity and turns that around. The most famous case of this is with the Florida panther in which they got down to less than 30 individuals. They had severe inbreeding problems, physical deformities. They brought in eight females from another population. And within 10 years, the population was over 100 and is over nearly 200 today and still growing after they did that 25 years ago. The problem is there are no other populations of black-footed ferrets to get new individuals from. So how do we do it? What would we do to increase their genetic diversity? Well, just so it turns out that two of those individuals that didn't have living descendants have frozen cells at San Diego Zoo. And so we proposed using cloning with domestic ferrets as surrogate mothers by taking those old black-footed ferret cells, implanting them into egg cells, then into surrogate mothers and producing those brand new animals to the population. We sequence the genomes of those animals and they have huge amounts of diversity that have been lost. And you may have seen the news of Elizabeth Ann, the world's first US endangered species cloned from, she was cloned from 32 year old cells, cells that were frozen when I was one year old. Um, and that's my hands holding her when she was 21 days old. And she is incredible. She has grown up really, really well. We're hoping she starts breeding just in the next few weeks. Um, and she's incredible. Her genome has 10 times as many unique allele variants as the average for the rest of the population alive today. So she packs one huge wall up. We've also done this with an endangered horse with San Diego Zoo. The Shabalski's horse has a similar history. Got down to like 12 individuals through a lot of circumstances and we cloned an animal from 40 years ago. Um, and he's doing great, that's him at one year old. If you visit the zoo, you can actually pay to go visit him and feed him a carrot. And being able to do this, create animals from a single cell actually opens up more opportunities to bring back genetic diversity. Through cloning and biobanking, we can get that back an entire animal's genome. But right now with gene editing, if we were to take DNA from museum specimens, we could bring back single loci, adaptable alleles. Uh, gene editing currently can produce about 120 some unique base edits in a cell at a time, or conversely, you can do about 150,000 base pair chunk of genome swap, and that's only going up. So we do have work in progress to do this for immune genes in this species. In the next 10 years, I guarantee you will see a couple different types of gene-edited black-footed ferrets. So this is, species is gonna to continue to make milestones. That was only possible through biobanking, taking tissue, 
producing high quality cell lines. Through that, you can expand the number of materials you have and then freezing that down in cryoprotectants for later. Biobanking is critical for the future. My motto is we should prepare for the worst while making sure that the worst case scenario never happens. It's actually amazingly rare how many biobanked materials we have. We looked at what other species we could replicate this with, and it's just, it's, it's a, there's just nothing almost out there to try and do this, replicate this type of genetic rescue. So, but we could be getting genetic diversity today to enable the Elizabeth Anns and Kurtz of the future. With US endangered plants and animals, it turns out that in our database searches, we've only been able to find biobanked tissues for 13.4% of them, despite the fact that biobanking has existed for over 50 years. Germplasm biobanking has existed for over 75 years, but they're still not being taken up. So we actually have a program in talks right now to help start fixing that. And we are raising money and getting some money to actually start doing what we call informed biobanking, where we are hoping that in the next 10 years or so, we can ramp up and enable U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and their partners to biobank strategically valuable samples from every endangered species in the U.S. And hopefully the world will emulate upon that. Now, this last rung, once you have sequencing and you have your cellular technologies and you've shown you can make an animal, as I said, you can start thinking of genetic engineering and gene editing to really open up possibilities. I'll go back to the black-footed ferret because in our wheelhouse, we are now doing facilitated adaptation and developing that work for the species because of those 30 sites where they've been reintroduced, 17 of those sites have been rendered inactive due to disease. Sylvatic plague to be exactly the the same agent, Yersinia pestis, that causes the Black Death throughout history, got to America, and these ferrets have no immunity or resistance whatsoever to this disease. It's spread by fleas and through direct contact. It has spread across the Western U.S. and infects people throughout that region as well. But a person, of course, can just get antibiotics and be okay. Wildlife cannot. It has a huge reservoir, and we've been battling with what we'll do with this problem for a while. The one good news is that a successful vaccine was developed for black-footed ferrets. All black-footed ferrets released to the wild are vaccinated. The problem is wild-born ferrets have no immunity. That doesn't transmit from one generation to the other. So if you go out and capture a wild ferret, boost it, and then you either have to keep it in captivity for six weeks so it can get its second shot or recapture it six weeks later, both of which present huge problems. Stress in captivity for a wild-born animal, or the difficulty of capturing the same animal twice. Anyone that's done field work knows this is a nightmare. It renders the species conservation reliant. So what we're doing, what we have funding to explore and are exploring at the moment, just at the beginning, is the idea of creating a genetic version of that vaccine, something that acts exactly like that vaccine, but is integrated into the genome of the animal that has promoters for age-specific expression, so it's released at the right time, for the right dosage, and producing the exact same antigens that are injected into the body so that we create self-vaccinating ferrets and create a species that no longer needs constant human intervention. And I do believe in the next 10 years, we'll have black-footed ferrets like this. We're starting with domestic ferrets to do some of the lab work. And of course, the most ambitious and controversial media caching aspect of our toolkit is recreating the functional equivalence of extinct species. I myself lead our passenger pigeon project, so I know people will probably ask questions about that. Um, the idea is basically the same setup, the same system of tools you would use for disease resistance or climate resistance or something like that, where you're sequencing genomes, 
engineering in a petri dish, producing animals. And I think the thing I want to really emphasize is for de-extinction is these last two steps here are not innovative or new. They're old news. People have been doing this for species very effectively, particularly birds. So, so if you're going to focus in on controversy and things like that, look at this end. This end is going to be fine. So this time frame I used to use really uh, optimistically, but I actually think we might meet this time frame. I think in this decade, we will start converting living bandtail pigeons into passenger pigeons. And hopefully to nature, you know, na the, the trees that actually once had passenger pigeons on them are like, wow, you're a passenger pigeon, you're back. We know scientifically we're creating some sort of a hybrid. I'm happy to answer more questions about this. But in general, I wanna focus on why we care about doing these things because none of this has brand new context. People have been restoring extinct populations throughout the world for a very long time for many different reasons. Here's just a time frame of some. Um, and it's not even just recent. In Pleistocene Park in Siberia, Sergei Zimov has been putting back grazing herds of animals that haven't lived there in over 7,000 to 12,000 years as a cohort. Um, this is throughout the world. Recently in Spain in 2017, a herd of bison was reintroduced. Bison have not lived in Spain for 15,000 years. We don't restore populations for some idea that there's a historic baseline that's better than today. Conservationists look at the, at the habitat, what's degrading and what roles would help the most. And we look at the past because it's a blueprint of what once worked and was co-evolved to work. And when you restore ecotypes that fit past ecosystems that have a function today, you have really amazing restorative results. And that's why people do it. The thing is, without genetic engineering, some of these very unique species like passenger pigeons or mammoths are just off the table. There's nothing alive today that could take their place. But with these new technologies, we can think of actually expanding this toolkit. And why do we do it? For those purposes I was talking about, but there's also a huge amount of social, cultural, and economic reasons to do this. Restoring extinct populations is huge for ecotourism, recreational purposes like hunting, and it creates jobs. There's a lot of reasons people have been doing this, and we've been doing this for 200 years. Passenger pigeons specifically would come into an area of forest with a huge flock of a billion birds, lay down tons of droppings, break down branches, and basically kickstart the regeneration cycle. This is something that Eastern forests in the United States are uniquely adapted to do. Every species needs this. And the science is emerging from our research as well as others that passenger pigeons were a primary ecosystem engineer of the forest cycle. So an old textbook figure, a lot of people have seen this cycle in the Eastern US, it should always have that little pigeon added to it there because passenger pigeon flocks would come into an area and cause this cycle and nomadically move somewhere new every few weeks. So by doing that constant movement, they were keeping the Eastern forests in a patchwork mosaic dynamic, creating heterogeneous habitats, which support more life than any particular stage of the cycle. When they were in an area, they were a huge resource for the food chain with their carcasses, their guano. And then of course, when they left, we see the turnover. And that looks like this. This is like actually another old 1940s textbook image that I've updated. Pigeons come in, create the succession. And without them, it's actually often been assumed that fire suppression is related to this, but there's a lot of data to, uh, to suggest it's more complicated with the pigeons. Without that today, despite the fact that we have more forests today than we've had in 150 years in the Eastern US, thanks to reforestation, we have hundreds of species in decline. We've got habitat cover and decline, which by conventional 
conservation, we're like, oh, does that work? And it's because we don't have this dynamic. Tons of these species, including entire large foundation species like chestnuts and oaks, need this type of dynamic to recruit and live. And so the idea of passenger pigeon extinction is to get back a biological agent that can do that for us and sustain our forest diversity. If you want to know more about de-extinction specifically, you can check out my open access 2018 paper. I can give you my paper on ethics and welfare. It's in a book, so you don't probably want to spend $200 on the book. Happy to email that. And then, of course, I have a more recent paper on translocations, which is related to interventions in general. Which then, of course, leads people to think about what about the unintended consequences? So I've been pitching genetics and, and biodiversity and, and intervention to you. People are going to always think about the unintended consequences. And I said earlier that inaction is not an option. And I want to stress that. Intervention is one option, inaction is another, and it has consequences, such as the large cowie thrush. People had proposed a captive breeding program. One researcher was strongly opposed, and they went extinct. The dusky seaside sparrow, the only option left to save it was hybridization with another species, subspecies. The federal agencies have never had a strong hybrid policy and, and wanted genetically pure animals, and they went extinct too. And in Italy, in 1997, gray squirrels from America got introduced, and there was a, a team that was wanting to go out and aggressively eradicate them quickly. An animal rights group sued them over welfare issues, that these animals had some kind of right to be there. And by the time that court case was settled three years later, it was an unmanageable population. So delaying action and not acting have dire consequences most times much worse than the consequences that could come from acting. There are, when it comes to biotechnology, there are entire organizations dedicated to obstructing progress in this field, particularly when it comes to the environment. And we need a counter narrative to that. So Revive and Restore started talking about the idea of, well, what if, we, what if we start talking about the intended consequences? Can we bring rational balance to this discipline that's overly dominated by a precautionary principle? We convened a meeting with several people from NC State and others around the world, produced a special issue all about these, these topics. Our co-founder and executive director, Ryan Phelan, made this the topic of her TED Talk, which has uh, nearly 2 million views now. And we're pushing this as a major campaign and part of the conservation system, because it doesn't matter how much we push technology to achieve routine use of intervention in biotech and conservation, which we will need quickly. Doesn't matter how much we, we move the science, even when we make amazing proofs of concepts like Elizabeth Ann, if we're not advancing the social stakeholder dynamic side of this, we will never get to routine use. It took seven and a half years to clone Elizabeth Ann. It only took two months to actually clone her. The majority of that time frame was gaining support within the recovery uh, team, gaining credibility to the technology, assembling the partnerships, actually getting a government permit to do this because there was no kind of regulation in Fish and Wildlife Services to whether or not cloning and these technologies were okay. That took a long time. And we spent a, you know, a fair amount of the investment in Elizabeth Ann is all of that rather than the science. So it's absolutely imperative. I wanna go back to those timeframes I had at the beginning. By 2050, we could lose 90% of our 
reefs. By 2080, half of the diversity hotspots, hot I mean, half of diversity in hotspots could be gone. It takes about 10 years at the, the quickest to develop a biotechnological solution. So far, the government approval rating of these things is in the two decade range. The first GMO food took 25 years to approve from invention, still is not on shelves five years after approval. Still not at market, even though it was approved. The uh, recombinant factor C for horseshoe crabs invented 27 years ago, still not approved. And once something is approved, it doesn't mean that it's just automatically adopted. It can take two decades for the field to adopt it. That's a time frame that's just not reconcilable with the problem of biodiversity we're having. So our hope is that the intended consequences initiative, that resetting our mindset on these things and really rebalancing and thinking through what is the actual likelihood of risk versus the outcomes of benefits and how do we really think about risk mitigation without getting it to the point of precautionary paralysis so that we can shrink that down and make that something where we can roll out these solutions before we hit really, really points of no return. I think we may be at a social turning point already. I wanna go back to Elizabeth Ann and Kurt. This is cloning only, it's not genetic engineering, but cloning has traditionally been a divisive and controversial technology. And it has taken 20 years to actually create real genetic rescue cloning efforts. The first clone endangered species was in 2001, yet these programs at scale for actual application didn't exist until 2020. And we started them in 2013, but it took a while to ramp up. But after a lot of worry from the stakeholders in this was how the optics would play out. How would the public respond and other scientists and other people? Within one week of the press releases of each of these, over 1.6 billion people saw the news of these two, two things. Elizabeth Ann especially. One week, one out of every seven people on the planet knew about Elizabeth Ann. She's probably the most famous clone since Dolly. And look at these numbers coming in from reception. 31% positive versus 3% negative. 0% negative for Kurt. These are incredible numbers for a controversial technology. And quite frankly, I was going through Twitter and social media and plenty of things, and people have fully fallen in love with and embraced these clones. And they're ready for more. A year after that press release, we still have journalists making stories about Elizabeth Ann. They care about the next milestones in her life. A major piece in science was about when she's going to breed. These are turning points. Projects like the transgenic American chestnut tree could be signaling that the world is ready for biotechnology and conservation. And the, the burden falls to us working in it and communicating it to actually unify and have a paradigm that's, that, that we are centralized on because infighting within us will create uncertainty in the stakeholders. And we can't afford that. At Revive and Restore, we want to create a future that has more life in it and more bioabundance than we have today. And biotechnology will get us there, and we can do that as a society. That's my talk. Okay, um, could you provide a little more insight onto what the obstacles are in the regulatory process that are, if that's making this really difficult, both with things like the recombinant um, C protein and 
kind of along those lines, um, I'm assuming this is based on the U.S. system. Is there anywhere yes. else in the world where the regulatory process is much shorter or sweeter? Um, largely, every regulatory, um, every government in the world, uh, uh, it's just a big question mark. Biotechnologies are newer, even if even if they're decades old to us, they were never really incorporated into policy. Policy was created before them, and um, and it's just hard to know. Most most governments would like to fit things into existing pathways, and it's just not sure where to fit them. You know, here in the U.S., ultimately with genetic engineering, FDA, USDA, different agencies just didn't want to touch things and kept saying like, oh, it's this other agency's purview, not ours, and and so it got shifted around. You know. And, and ultimately, there are some nations for gene editing, like Japan and others, where the regulatory environment may be more relaxed, but it's still unknown um, just how quickly these things can move forward. And of course, in a more relaxed government area, you have high contentious as to whether or not that's appropriate. Um, you know, and I think the, the real issues here is how do we have the public conversations and let the regulatory system proceed um, without either of the two hanging each other up? Um, for, I actually do think for the environment, it may move faster because people have started, I think the, one of the reasons we're seeing people a little more easy on the environment is it doesn't do with food that they're putting in their body or things that could be affecting them. Um, but we'll see how that plays out with the horseshoe crab. There is a monetary incentive for the people who bleed horseshoe crabs to avoid the adoption of the synthetic alternative. So there are huge lobbying and major smear campaigns going on there. Um, ultimately, what's interesting is, and as well, this is why I said about entire organizations dedicated to obstructing, is there are. People trying to develop solutions are usually in the weeds of trying to develop a solution, and they can't dedicate 100% of their time to lobbying to a government about why something should go through. And organizations that want to obstruct, they're not developing alternative solutions. They're not part of the future solution. They're just taking advantage of, of chaos and controversy to stop the solution they don't like. And that's the reality we're in. And, and uh, yeah, there's just, it's just unclear. There are some policies emerging in USDA biotech for agriculture and things that I think could be lifted over to the environment, but it's still just really unclear. And there's enough places in the chain to allow small minority groups with heavy voices to, to obstruct. In the back, about the sales for the cloning. Um, are there still sales left over for the flat-footed uh, ferret? And I don't know if that was the donkey or whatever it was. And how many clones can you do from the sales? Like how much, this many sales equals this many clones? Yeah, yeah. So um, first I just wanted to point out, so question on cloning, in case nobody heard about how many cells you know, it kind of takes to do it. And, you know, how did we, you know, whether or not we depleted the resource, that was a major question to the to the recovery team right like there there were seven vials of frozen uh stud book number 10 or willis cells and if we thaw out one you know what do we get back um so i will say this one for for my own expertise cloning bird biotechnology um de-extinction those are kind of my three big areas um for me so so i may not be able to answer every question outside of that but with this one i can so the amazing thing about Kurt is it only took four embryos to create Kurt. So theoretically, it only took four cells. But the reality of that is 
you grow the cells up. So you take a population of a few thousand cells, you grow them to maybe a couple hundred thousand cells, select out a few for the cloning, produce the embryos. But in both, both steps of the process, producing the clone and growing the cells, you can freeze back down the cells you don't use. Every time you grow up cells, you do potentially introduce new mutations and potential degradation. So it's not advisable to go back to the same set of cells and keep growing and growing and growing. But once you produce a clone, it's infinite from that point. You can just reculture from the clone. Um, a single cell line of mice was recloned for 25 generations without any degradation to the biology or fitness of the mouse. You can clone from a clone again and again and again and again each generation. So, so it is a renewable resource actually when you produce the animals. And, and uh, the, the single vial of cells that we produced, uh, that we took to produce Elizabeth Ann has ended up producing multiple vials of replenished cellular resources. Uh, David Resnick uh, has a question, has had his hand up. David, do you want to ask uh, the question? Um, yes, thank you for your talk. Um, this has been very fascinating. Do you see any um, purposes for environmental uh, genetic engineering that you would not endorse? Um, suppose somebody, a biohacker or whatever, decided they wanted to make sparrows more colorful and they tried to drive a gene into the sparrow population to, to make a more colorful bird. That seems like not a very good reason. Do you, do you have you know, in mind like really, you know, is there a cutoff for like how important the reason must be in terms of uh, ecological benefit or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll try to answer this succinctly. Um, I, I have some personal, but also professional feelings on, on you know, appropriate use. Uh, you know, one, the idea of just like designer species in nature is, is uh, changing colors. There is most things that we will alter in a natural species will be at a fitness cost. We are not, we are not the infinite experiment of evolution um, that has already played out. Um, and as we know from population genetics, most new mutations are at a fitness cost. So, so I think, you know, it really has to be focused in on what the goal is rather than just tinkering as we would like. When it comes to extinct species, I would love it if there was a day where we could just recreate proxies for every extinct species, because most species that have gone extinct in the past hundred thousand years could have a place in a restored environment today. Um, but, uh, but the reality is in conservation is there's very limited funding and, men, and most habitats are degraded. So we have to be looking at places where not only can, and I think this is where the focus has been wrong for a lot of time. People are like, well, you can't bring back an extinct species unless you have the environment. And it's like, that's not actually the cause and effect that we're after. Because why spend a whole lot of money to put an animal back into an environment if the environment's there and it's doing okay? The idea is to have an actual disproportionate benefit to the activity. So we want to bring back species that improve and change the environment in a beneficial way. So our focus has been on things that produce disproportionate environmental benefit. Um, that said, when I was asked to do an ethical welfare paper on de-extinction, I was asked about the idea of recreating dinosaurs, which is not possible from a genetic standpoint, from, from, because we have no DNA from dinosaurs. No one does. I know there's some people on this campus that think they have that. It doesn't exist. Um, I actually worked in that. That was my first uh, uh, work was in dinosaur molecules. 
And, uh, but you could t potentially recreate dinosaur looking like animals from birds. And I was asked to pontificate on the ethics of that. And I realized I couldn't say no to it because I can draw a line at the fact that there's no reason to have something that looks like a dinosaur in the environment. It's an ecotype that has no actual co-evolved place with anything alive today. And every time we put an, an ecotype in an environment where it's not a good fit, it's turned out bad. Um, but as companion animals, I don't think I have the ethical justification to say no, because that would mean that I should say no to my dog or my cat or any other companion animal. Like we have severely modified companion animals for 10,000 years, 40,000 if you consider dogs. Animals that do cause harm when released into the environment. Yet, I don't think the world is going to say, I, I'm going to give up my dogs because it's ethically wrong. And so if you're going to justify having a chihuahua, then it's okay to create a chickenosaurus as a companion animal. <laughs> People have pet chickens. It's just a different way of breeding. Genetic engineering really is just a breeding tool. So if you're okay with selective artificial selection for your pet, then it's okay. So try to alternate between <laughs> from the room and online. Um. I don't know how to follow the pet dinosaur, <laughs> but I'll try. Um, I have a comment because, of course, I do, and a question. Um, I really, the comment is I really appreciate your clarification around the role of restoration and the, like how we think about the restoration because there's so much of a especially anti-colonial critique around like this arbitrary baseline right so instead of thinking about like you want it to be like pre-columbian there's functional reasons i really appreciate that clarification um and my question i think you've talked about this in other places aside from the idea of this inaction question, what is your take on the idea of the moral hazard of, well, we have all these tools, if we start using all these tools, then what little conservation or preservation energy we have starts to dissipate? So just what's yeah. your take on, I have lots of mixed notions about that idea. Yeah, well, it's hard. It, 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 it's to emphasize, really emphasize, one of the reasons in this discipline we will always come back to resources and funding, et cetera, is the fact that there is not a single nation in the world that prioritizes the environment over exploitation. We do not have a global movement to actually care about biodiversity and the environment. And until that happens, everyone working, fighting to do that is fighting against each other for, for money and funding. It's, it's, and, and, and it's, it's a difficult environment We've always kind of gotten away with the idea that for biotech, we're trying to bring in new money, which we have. We've brought in new money, bring in new people. But the actual reality of it is, is and, I, and I hope this starts to sink in, is for these new in interventions, is that conservation has only gotten to where it is today, which is a good place, not the best. But a recent study found that without the last century of conservation, our current biodiversity situation would be 50% worse than it is now. We know that conservation with a lot of effort can work. We don't have enough effort yet, but it can work. We've only gotten there through innovation, through intervention. And actually, it's interesting because it's actually the past 40, 50 years where things have gotten more restrained in the early to mid 1900s. It was like the Wild West of conservation. People going, oh, maybe this will work. Let's do it. And some of the greatest things came out of that era. Some of the worst things came out of that era. Usually not conservation, though. 
That was usually different environmental agricultural things. But intervention and innovation have been key to that. And we see biotechnologies as expensive new detours, but the captive breeding program of the California condor has been $2.5 billion of government expense since it started in the 70s. That's government expense. It's likely in the four to $5 billion range of nonprofit and other dollars. It costs multiple million dollars a year to breed 400 birds and restore them. And there's a lot of morality and scientific and all sorts of reasons behind supporting and continuing to do that. Um, that species has a recessive genetic disorder that managed to sneak into the last few, I mean, that was present in the last few individuals and is of concern. Gene editing could get rid of it. And gene editing to do it might cost a couple million dollars. Well, what is that to five billion? And what is that in cost reduction to the next century of saving that species when you don't have to worry about that gene disorder being in this population anymore? which could have been weeded out by a different founder effect. With black-footed ferrets, as I said, there is literally no other way to increase genetic diversity except through cloning and gene editing. Um, I've worked out the cost of Elizabeth Ann with everything. She's about, she's about um, five times the cost of a conventionally bred ferret, but she has 10 times as much genetic diversity. So, you know, it's, we have these conversations now, but my hope is that people start to see that we are in a position to where we have to innovate and we have to come up with new solutions. And the new solutions today are simply the standard things of tomorrow. Just like the things that we, people talk about this, they're like, well, we just need to protect habitat. It doesn't matter how much habitat you protect for a black-footed ferret when plague goes through, they all die. Same thing happened in Hawaii. Conservationists spent 10 years restoring habitat for the Maui parrot bill, created beautiful habitat for it. And in that 10 years, the climate changed just enough to allow mosquitoes in, the mosquitoes that transmit malaria, that kill the birds, and every bird they reintroduced when they were done died, except like two that they managed to capture back. So now they have suitable habitat that they did all the conventional work for, and it's uninhabitable for the birds. Genetic engineering is likely going to be the only way to get rid of the mosquitoes. So we're just at a position where I think we have to stop focusing on where we're spending our resources and how controversial it is. I mean, sorry, I don't want that taken out of context. We have to focus on where we spend the resources, but we have to look at it as in terms of what reduces our burden and cost for the next so many decades, because if a species has to cling on at low numbers for many, many generations, it becomes harder and harder to maintain viability. And that increases the burden of costs and makes it to where our conventional measures that we accept as okay are virtually impossible to actually deploy. Can I make sure I hear you correctly? And yes. Clarify? So it sounds like part of what you're saying is that for the last uh, century or so, we've talked about the idea of conservation mostly in the, largely and not mostly, but largely in the context of like protected areas and some of these other places. And one of the things you're saying is that's only gotten us so far and in order for these habitats to be more functional, more biodiverse, one of the tools we, we also need on top of that previous effort are some of these other biotech systems. But that's yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, it's, it's, you know, if, if everything goes okay, then in 10 years, 20 years, people will just think biotechnology is an acceptable standard part of environmental management. Kind of like, it's not as controversial today to start a captive breeding program. But when the California condor was going extinct in the wild, a nonprofit group organized called Extinction with Dignity. 
And they were against saving the California condor through captive breeding because it would violate the, the culture of the condor. And they were going extinct naturally. And it was what was good for the environment. Et All the science they had at the time, they felt compelled us to allow the last living condors to live their lives free in the wild. And what's amazing is, one, all of their points were wrong because we found out later that California condors were declining due to pollution and other activities. The, the recovery program has managed to actually show that we can succeed. There are more California condors in the wild than in captivity today, and they're producing more offspring in the wild than in captivity. But the true gem of a moment that happened in condor conservation was because they're such long-lived animals. The last animal captured was Igor. I love his name. He was captured Easter Sunday, 1987. And he had seen, he had witnessed many of his other few surviving California condors captured, and he had learned all the traps. And so he was evading people. And the guy that was going to capture him, he was just, he had so much anxiety. He, he was worried, what if I capture Igor and then I trip and I fall on him and I kill the world's last living wild condor? I mean, and with these groups saying like it was wrong, I mean, it was, it was, it was tense. He captured Igor, brought him into captivity, and 15 years later in 2002, after helping save his species, Igor was re-released to the wild, and the people who were originally against it met with the people from the recovery program to re-release him to the wild. And that's an incredible moment that an animal can be brought back into captivity and then set back free. It's pretty rare, but it's a powerful moment. It tells an amazing story, and it shows the fact that it was, you know, it ultimately was a good thing and was the right thing to do. And Igor started doing things in the wild that we had never anticipated. He started actually teaching captive born and released birds how to be wild condors in social behaviors that had never been observed in condors before, which were probably always there. It's just we didn't have the luxury of time to study them. Same thing happened recently with Diego, the, the super stud tortoise that made the news because he single-handedly saved his species. They lived for 200 years, so he's now free in the wild again after having spent, I think, 70 years in captivity. Um, and he gets to be wild again. We don't get to do that a lot. But these interventions can have really amazing stories to them. And years ago, when they were capturing those animals, as I said, it was contentious. And now if, we, if we, they had had the tools back then to screen genetics and do things differently, they could have saved tons of money. Like we have tools now just in genomics, not even going to genetic engineering that could greatly enhance, reduce our costs, improve viability and make these things easier. So that as we're restoring habitat, protecting, creating corridors, et cetera, and getting our things figured out, we can have success. But I don't deal with this, but I told Eli this morning at breakfast, the main thing the world has to do is change land use. Agriculture is the number one enemy of biodiversity in the past and the future with how we have to use land to produce food. We have to change how we use land and we need to put at least, a lot of people say 50%, like we need 30% wilderness, we need this, that. No, no, we need 99% of the land we currently use back with other species. That's the number we should be targeting in like 20 years. We have time for maybe like one quick question. Um, I was just going to ask, um, why do you think there's such a big disparity between GEQ and uh, reintroducing species? 
I really do think it has to come with the fact that a reintroduced species, I think it's two reasons, and I don't like either of them. <laughs> One is the idea that uh, a lot of humans have problems over GE food because it's going into our body. So we consider it's a potential risk to us. People argue that there's environmental issues with GE crops, mainly as a crutch to support the fact that they don't want to put it in their body and they feel it has health problems. Right now, the world is more urbanized than it is rural. There's a huge majority of human beings that really believe that the wilderness is something that's in a box away from us that doesn't affect our lives. And so they feel that interventions there won't affect our food supply or us. And that's not true. Neither one of those is, is good reasons to hate GE crops and be okay with wildlife restoration. One, because there is no wall between us and nature. There never has been. And the things we do affect nature and it affects us. And two, GE foods are safe and good, and we're just eating DNA like we've always eaten forever. So, you know, it's, it's, but there's a lot more complexity there. And it really is, it's, it's 100% social dynamics, cultural things. And, uh, and oftentimes it's really steered from the fact that these conversations are only happening with one audience. I should, and I'll emphasize that idea that there's a wall between humans and nature is a Western concept. It is not shared by the majority of other cultures in the world. Um, so when we have Anglican, you know, conversations in a vacuum, that's what steers a lot of this. And we have not heard enough from indigenous communities and non-white communities around the world about their actual feelings towards nature and what interventions mean in nature. So we need to have those conversations. And it will change the questions that we have even in rooms like this. One quick correction. Uh, do, you, do you want to ask a question? Uh, that's me, sorry. I couldn't hear very well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we might not have a lot of time left for this one, but I wanted to ask, uh, you mentioned having only about 13% of I think it was extinct species identified as being biobanked um, and that there was a plan for improving that number. I wanted to know uh, if you, what sort of plans there were, like are there potential, you know, biobanks that haven't been identified? I was wondering in particular about uh, herbariums that might have, you know, plant uh, samples from you know, hundreds of years ago. So, so first it's, uh, I'll just clarify that it's, uh, present, present endangered species. Okay. But, but to that, to that sentiment, yeah, there's, there's potential seed banks that go back over a century and none of these things really have digitized databases and whatnot. So we don't necessarily know it's, it's definitely a minority. There's probably more than 13% that have some biobank tissue, but one of the problems, even with what we've found, is the fact that biobanking for a lot of time, even seed banking and tissue banking, actually doesn't preserve the quality of specimen to, actually, to bring something back later. Um, so even among what's already out there, it's not all sufficient quality. There may be a day where biotech gets to a point where we can, we can actually use some of those tissues, but we do know that we really want high quality tissues and cell lines of, of animals and plants, fungi, everything frozen down for later. And so that's what we're trying to ramp up. And, and we are, we're fundraising to do a few things in that space because the, the sad thing is, is that people go out and take tissue samples from endangered species every year. And they take them back to a lab 
and well, actually, we'll, we'll talk about this first. They most often stick them into ethanol, which kills them. So they're out of the genetic rescue loop forever from that point on. Then they take them back to their lab, they grind them up, and they do genetics analyses. It's just not worked into the process for academics and, and agency scientists to go out and actually preserve something in a cryo shipper that has it in good quality for later. And there's logistical problems with that, nightmares about that, right? Like, how do you keep something cold in the mountains of Hawaii or the Sonoran Desert when you're eight hours away from the nearest FedEx office to send it to a biobank? Because there are institutional partners, San Diego Zoo, uh, Smithsonian, Burke Museum, you know, museums and zoos around the country, as well as a USDA repository, are large biobanks that could accept samples. But we need to get the field people with the tools they need to preserve a sample and then get it to those people and work those partnerships. So the fundraising we've been doing that we are working on is creating, is in the hopes to create field kits, modular styled types of field kits that are really readily available and usable and mass produced and protocols to where people can open up something weatherproofed and go, okay, I have a mammal, go to page six. It's small, go to page seven and just walk through how they take the sample and get it in the kit and ship off. And uh, so that's something we're working on. And we've been talking with Fish and Wildlife Service scientists and executive leadership about expanding those capabilities, as well as just working it into the recovery plans. So only 2% of endangered animals have biobanking listed as an activity under a recovery plan, and only 10% of plants. So from a policy perspective, it's not really included. And the beauty about the Endangered Species Act is that if something is written into a recovery plan, whether there's any other type of regulatory uh, uh, law or anything about it, if it's in a recovery plan, it's not only permissible, but it's required. So if we get things like biobanking, genomics, even gene editing and things into recovery plans of species, then we open a doorway to actually create regulatory pathways that are really simple to move forward. Um, hey, can we see your cat? <laughs> Where's your cute cat? He's oh, right look at that. Here. What a cute kitty. He was cameoing a little before. Yeah. Uh, well, with that cat, I think we're um, um, a little bit over time. I really respect time. Um, but please join me in thanking Ben for the wonderful seminar and the great